Luke chapter 1, and you'll find that on page 855 if you're using a copy of the Church Bible. We are just going to look this morning, though, at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, so I want to invite you to have your copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. And before we read this uh, prologue, this introductory section of Luke's Gospel, let me pray for us again. Father in heaven, we would not dare come to the ministry of your word without asking that you would send your spirit to accompany the preaching of your word and the preaching of the gospel. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be exalted, that your spirit would take of yours and would reveal it to us. We pray, our God, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that understand that we might turn to you. And we might be healed. We pray that you would do a great and a marvelous work and a mighty work among us. And so, our God, please bless the reading and the preaching of your word to our souls for fruit in this life and even unto eternal life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. And uh, surprisingly, we never read Luke's name in this gospel. We just know that Luke wrote it because that is what Christendom has Uh, received uh, throughout all of New Covenant Church history. It has been uh, uniform and unanimous opinion that Luke wrote that. There are details in both Luke and Acts that would lead us to believe that the Luke who's with Paul, the beloved physician, is the one who wrote this um, amazing gospel record. And yet, Luke begins here in Luke 1.1, Inasmuch as many as have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I think it's fair to say that when historians and uh, the great thought leaders of our day come to title 2017, they are going to call it the year of fake news. I am almost entirely sure that 2017 will be called the year of fake news. It was fake news uh, coming from the current administration. It was accusations of fake news when the current administration was running. It is now fake news being bandied the other way. Um, it, it makes you a little more sympathetic to all the conspiracy theorists. A little bit, not a lot, but it does, if we're honest, a little bit to all the conspiracy theories out there. But one thing that that it's done for me is it's made me really consider over the last several years, how do we know that what we're hearing is objectively true? There's no website. I know you may point me to websites you like that say this is the website where you'll find the corner on truth. There is no book you can consult to know for sure all the intricacies of every debate and every issue that you're being told you need to line up on. That's why we have so much division. It's why we have so much discussion. And it's ironic to me that we live in a day when men and women will not tolerate absolute truth, but they will cry out for credibility and honesty in facts that are being communicated to the general masses. It's fascinating to me that in a day when individuals will not stand for absolute truth in any sort of biblical sense, 
about life, they will cry out. You know, I've also thought that maybe uh, the best place we can go for any kind of uh, not fake news is documentaries. It seems like documentaries are on the rise. I recently heard somebody say, you know, in the 80s and 90s, if you had a friend that watched documentaries, you were like, you did what? And then you kind of just backed out of the friendship. Um, It was not acceptable to watch documentaries. Now everybody's, hey, I watched a documentary. I know what happened. I know what's happening, and I know what's probably going to happen. Documentaries have become the big objective standard for how we know truth. Even there, we would have to question, how do we know that what we're being told, how do we know that the research that went into this, how do we know that the facts that are coming to us are verifiable? Um, We don't stake that on the fact that we like this person or that person, or we think this person's more authentic than that person. There have to be some sort of historical, objective, meaningful, logical reasons why we believe what we believe. Well, in the same way, that is true with Scripture. And here, as we begin this series on Luke's Gospel, you'll notice that Luke has this great sentence. In the Greek, it is one sentence, four verses. It's a very long sentence. It's, it actually um, makes you wonder Um, if Luke began writing this and he was going to include the word briefly and then realize there's not going to be anything brief about what I'm about to do. This is the longest book in the New Testament, the longest gospel. This long sentence that serves as the introduction uh, sets the stage for a very careful and orderly and detailed record of who Jesus is. And so we may be tempted to jump into the birth narratives beginning there in verse 5. We're going to get to them. We're going to have Christmas in July next week. We're going to get all into the birth narratives about Jesus. But it would, it would hurt us if we glossed over the purpose of Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It is supremely important what Luke tells us. Luke, by the way, doesn't mention himself. Very interesting. There are... Um, And I have a friend who is a PhD student who believes that Luke wrote the book of Hebrews as well as Luke and Acts, which would make sense in part because Luke doesn't name himself as the author of Luke or Acts, and the writer of Hebrews doesn't name himself as the author. And so here notice that Luke is drawing our attention to his purpose and We're going to see several things this morning as we come into this section and consider this one very pregnant sentence as we consider this introduction. Um, First, we're going to consider the carefully researched nature of Luke's gospel record. Secondly, we're going to consider the orderly nature of Luke's gospel record. And then finally, we are going to consider the verified nature, the careful, the orderly and the verified. Well, notice Luke kind of gives us those words in this section. He says there in verse 1, Inasmuch as many have taken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent. Theophilus. Now, the very first thing that Luke is going to tell us is that he has carefully researched this. He has listened to these, quote unquote, many accounts. What Luke is saying is that in his day, there were many records about Jesus. Now, he is not saying my record is right. Their records are wrong. That's that's a mistake that some liberal scholars might try to slip under your door. 
Luke is putting himself against these other ones and saying, well, there's all these different ones and who's to say who's right, but this is my right approach. No, Luke is saying there are many trustworthy, many carefully eyewitnessed accounts of who, careful eyewitness accounts of who Jesus was and what Jesus did so that you can know this is not fake news. And Luke doesn't tell us what those records are. This has puzzled scholars over the years. Is he referring to Matthew? Because maybe he's referring to the Gospel of Matthew. There's many similarities between Matthew and Luke. Maybe Luke is referring to the Gospel of Mark because it's a, it's a very probable argument, actually, that, that Luke uh, and Matthew are drawing off of Mark. And then other scholars are going to say, well, maybe and, and probably there were sources behind Mark, maybe even an original source, what they'll call a Q source. And all of them are drawing off of this mysterious source that we don't have today. But, but that source was trustworthy and the other sources are trustworthy. And Matthew and Mark are certainly d- divinely inspired by God, as is Luke. And so Luke has given himself to scholarly work. You know, it's very interesting. Luke is called the beloved physician. You would expect a physician to give himself to careful scholarship. Luke also has a penchant for history. Uh, He is sort of an armchair historian. He is is, um, sort of your renaissance man of the gospel writers. And so Luke gives us this very carefully researched and carefully studied of the Gospels. There are even some, and I think that there is uh, perhaps some probability to this, there are some that believe that Luke is incorporating accounts having interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus. That would make sense, wouldn't it? I mean, Luke is traveling with Paul. He is decades from the apostles. He tells us in this account, notice that these things have been accomplished, notice the end of verse 1, among us. Among us, he includes himself, with the apostolic band, though he is a second generation, as it were, super important. He was there. That's important. How do I know that fake news is fake? Well, if they weren't there and there aren't eyewitnesses and these things don't have that sort of credibility level, remember on the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word will be established, God has said. And so here, notice Luke is including himself. And there in verse 2, just as those who from the beginning, he's talking about Peter and James and John and the apostles, they were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. They were there. They saw him. Remember, John tells us in 1 John, it's a big deal. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have handled, which we have touched concerning the word of life, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you so that you can have fellowship with us. Uh, Peter will say in his letter, we were with him on the holy mountain when we saw and heard the majestic glory, the cloud. He doesn't even reflect on being a witness to Jesus' face shining like the sun. He reflects on being a witness to the cloud that overshadowed them that said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. They were eyewitnesses. You can choose to disbelieve that to your own peril and, and condemnation, but we will choose to believe this as Christians. This is one of the first verifying facts. Now, one of the interesting questions, and one that maybe you've never thought about, is why did God give us four Gospels? If there were these other writings out there, 
Why, why not just compile them down and give us Luke? Why would it not be adequate just to have Luke's gospel record? I think there are four brief answers to why Luke has carefully researched his gospel record and has brought it together with, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God has, has determined that Luke's writing would be carried along uh, without error to be part of uh, the other two synoptic gospels, synoptic means to see through. You put them all together and you see through. Synoptic, you look through them all like lenses. Um, and John's gospel, why, why put them together? Well, I think he carefully researched his gospel record in order for it to be part of these four for this reason. Sinclair Ferguson says the fact that there are four gospels tells us that Jesus is the center of our faith in our lives. If, if, that's, that's amazing. The fact that there are four gospel records about who Jesus is and what he did in his earthly ministry shows that he is the center of the faith, the center of our lives. The whole Bible is about Jesus, but four narratives that tell us the same thing in different angles, different sides, turning it, different details, nuances, without contradictions, seeming contradictions at points, but without any real contradictions. And I think that's a beautiful uh, attempt at explaining why three synoptic Gospels, why four Gospels. I, I think also uh, it takes more than one man to capture the glory of Jesus. It takes more than one record to capture the glory of Jesus. Jesus has so much glory that only four Gospel records from four very different men bringing different angles and different viewpoints can even adequately bring us close to capturing how much glory Jesus has. You need it. I need it. I need to see the glory of Jesus. I need as much help as I can get. And God has given us these four glorious gospels. And as we specifically focus on this, Luke's gospel. Okay, third point, why Luke researched to write this and why God has included it with the other three. The gospels are suited to different audiences. Um, Luke is going to have a particular focus. We'll come to hear about that in a second. Matthew is writing... Uh, evangelizing his Jewish brethren, no doubt. Mark is trying to give you a summary statement for perhaps the Gentile world to which Peter would go, a very brief and succinct view into who Jesus is. Luke is the beloved physician. He's highlighting the compassion of Jesus for the outcast and the hurt and the sick and the needy and the sinful and women and children, the underprivileged. He's focusing on those who wouldn't have been the, the, the top tier in society because he's a physician. He cares for the sick. He cares... He's focusing on a different audience and writing this for his friend, specifically Theophilus, who we'll talk about. And then fourth, I think, because simply put, as I've noted, on the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established. If there was only one gospel record, you may have a more palatable argument to suppress the truth and unrighteousness. You may have a stronger argument to hold down the truth and say, I don't believe that. But God has made it abundantly clear, and on Judgment Day, there are going to be four witnesses in addition to the other 62 in the Bible, books, bearing witness to who Jesus was. This is the real and the true, carefully researched, verifiable truth. Now, notice, um, and, and it's, very, it's really a beautiful picture. Luke is, Luke is kind of envisioning himself as a traveler. I want you to think of Luke right now as a traveler, because Luke will travel with Paul. He knows about 
going on travels. He probably provided for Paul when he was with him in the second part of the book of Acts in traveling with Paul. He was there on the boat with Paul. He was there when it was shipwrecked. That's how he could document everything. He probably supported the ministry of the Apostle Paul. But, but Luke is like a traveler, and, and it's like he's trying to discover a river. Luke is trying to discover a river. And, and he's going out, and he's, he wants to go, and he wants to descend on this river that he's heard about. And he wants to trace it out to its source. That's what he's doing. That's why this is trustworthy. Luke wants to find the source of the river, who is Christ. He wants to go and find out who is this Jesus and can I hold him forth in all of his glory and all of the truthfulness of the life and the ministry of the God-man. Can I hold him forth and can I come back and tell others where that stream is, where that riverhead is, what it's like, how it turns, where it moves, where it's rushing to. Notice that uh, Luke says there in verse 1, many have undertaken, right? So you might not say, why not just pick one of them, Luke, and, and just maybe doctor it up a little bit and put your name on it? Because Luke wants to see for himself. Luke wants to investigate for himself. Now, that's one of the great marks of a great Christian is somebody that says, I've heard these things and now I will seek them out for myself. I will search for myself. I will read for myself. I will cry out to God for myself. You know, a very, very foolish person doesn't do any of that. A simple and foolish person just goes through their life doing what they want, either blindly believing things or blindly rejecting these things. Um, Luke is a wise man and he's He's going on a journey. But secondly, uh, he gives us an orderly gospel record. Isn't it interesting? Notice that. Notice what he says in verse 3. It seemed good to me also. Right? There's already, there's already accounts out there, but it seems good to me also now as one who can, uh, by God's leading and guidance, and, and by the way, you're never going to do this. You will never write a book of the Bible. I'm just going to put that out there. And let that simmer. <laughs> you, will, you will never, you can laugh, because you will never, I will never write a book of the Bible, ever. Never. <laughs> God the Holy Spirit chose Dr. Luke to write part of Scripture, and he's saying it seemed good to me also. He's actually saying there is something superlative about what God has called me, commissioned me, is guiding me by his Spirit, is superintending me to do, in giving you this record so that you, and here he's writing first to Theophilus, but then to us, may have an orderly account. So what is necessary about Luke's gospel? It has a certain order to it. Isn't that interesting? What makes Luke's gospel a little bit different than Matthew and Mark and John? There's a different order to it. There is a divinely intended order. What is that order? Well, A, since we're doing outlines... There's an outline. <laughs> A on my outline is there is an outline. There's an outline to Luke's gospel. What is that outline? Well, very simple. Listen carefully. Two chapters about the birth, infancy, and childhood of Jesus. Two chapters about the preparation for and inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. Then, from chapters 4 through 9, we have a highlight of Jesus' public ministry in Galilee, and then from the end of chapter 9 
to chapter 19, we have a focus on Jesus heading to Jerusalem, where he's going to die on the cross. And then the rest of the book focuses on the death, the burial, the resurrection, the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus in which he commissions his disciples to go out into the world and to preach the gospel like I'm doing for you right now. And that's the simple, basic, clear outline, an orderly account. Now, I think when, when Luke says he wanted to give an orderly account, he's not merely thinking an outline. That would, that would be too basic. I think he's also talking about the order of the themes that he brings to bear. As we go through this book, you're going to find there are these themes. There are themes running through Luke's gospel. And here are those themes. You might want to write these down. You might want to just listen. The first theme is history. How do we know this is not fake news? <laughs> Where's the order of Luke's scholarship? You'll notice, and maybe you've had this question as you've read the Bible, but Luke loves history. He tells us about Caesar Augustus. You remember the Christmas pageants when you were a kid at the local Baptist church and everybody wanted to read that line in the days of Caesar Augustus. <laughs> and that was not for Christmas pageants for little children. That is history. He is saying these are historically verifiable things. He has a penchant for history. He loves history. He wants to root everything in history because Jesus lived in time and space in the fullness of human history, the fullness of time. God sent his son into the world. Luke is a historian. So you've got history running through this gospel. Number two, you've got to focus on the theme of salvation. Now, if you love Jesus, um, and I hope you do love the Lord, you would say, well, of course, doesn't everything have a focus on salvation in the Bible? Well, actually, no. Um, the word salvation almost never shows up in the gospel of Matthew or Mark. Very few times does any form of that word show up. Luke is replete with focus on salvation. In fact, it's in Luke's gospel in chapter 19, after Zacchaeus is saved, that Luke says the Son of Man came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. And Jesus himself earlier in chapter 5, when he calls Levi, says the Son of Man did not come into the world to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners. He came to save his people. He came on a mission to save. He came to save uh, the sinful. You know, Luke focuses on the lost son, doesn't he? The lost coin, the lost sheep. Luke is an evangelist. This is an evangelistic book. This is a book that is meant to stir you up to see you were once lost and have been found by Christ, or you are lost and need to be found by Christ, or everyone around you is or has been lost and needs to be found by the Lord Jesus. It is, it is fueling missions and evangelism. You, we often focus on the book of Acts, which is the sequel, part two, that Luke writes. And everybody says, oh, missions conference, sermons on Acts. I, I, I did a missions conference a couple months back and did it all out of Luke. Luke, full of a focus on salvation. So that's the second theme. The third theme. And I've mentioned this, Luke focuses on the deprived and the less privileged. Uh, there's a special focus in this book on the poor. Um, and a wealthy physician focusing on the poor, not the poor. You know, sometimes I'll talk to other pastors about how it's easy for um, uh, poor professing Christians to talk about how the church needs to care for the poor because they want to be cared for. 
Got to let that ruminate for a minute. But when the rich care for the poor and the rich call for caring for the poor, that's something else. Because the rich aren't trying to get the church to care for them. They are in sincerity caring for the poor. And here, the beloved physician Luke um, has this wonderful focus on the poor and the needy. He, he focuses on the socially ostracized. There are women throughout this gospel. The sinful woman of Luke 7 that comes and weeps behind Jesus' feet and washes his feet um, with her hair in brokenness and contrition. One of the most beautiful and powerful accounts of Jesus receiving a woman to be his disciple. In a society that did not revere women, Jesus loved those sisters that he came to redeem. Mary and Martha. It's chapter 10. He's in their house. That account where Martha's laboring and Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus. There are so many pictures of Jesus caring for women in this gospel. And then children. There is such a focus. And then Gentiles. Luke chapter 4 is the great statement where Jesus says to the Jewish people, essentially, I came to save the elect Gentiles. And they want to throw him off a cliff. And, and he points to Sy- name in the Syrian. And, and, and Jesus cares for the Samaritan and the Syrophoenician. And, and Luke is focusing on all these categories of the despised. Now, fourth, there is a focus on prayer in Luke's gospel that is unsurpassed in any gospel record. And not just prayer in general, but the prayer life of Jesus himself. No other gospel gives us the intricate details about the prayer life of Jesus. I think Luke is looking on and he's wanting to be a man of prayer the way the Savior was a man of prayer. And he is highlighting that the Savior got his high priestly power by going and calling on the Lord, even sometimes all night in prayer, praying in agony in the garden, crying out to his Father to help him fulfill the mission that he and his Father and the Spirit had commissioned him to do in the councils of eternity. And so... That's the second part of the order. The third part of the order, very quickly, it's a narrative. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you. It's a narrative. Okay, it's a narrative. Um, Our society hates propositional truth. No society, and I think it's arguable, no society in all of human history has hated propositional truth so much as ours. Our society wants a story. Our society can't handle absolute truth. They don't want fake news, but they don't want absolute truth. I'll let you think about that irony again. They, they want truth, but they want truth within the realm of their own story. And because there's no big story that makes sense of the whole universe, and, and why are we even here, and why are we doing what we're doing? Don't tell me that. Let me tell you about my story, and my story is all that matters, and that's post-modernity. And the only thing that matters is your story and what you want and your happiness. And it's very important, isn't it, that we get that God in his infinite wisdom has given us a story that trumps all other stories and of which all other stories must find their place and be interpreted by, and that is the story of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that to make sense of anything in this world, to make sense of your life, to interpret your story, you must know the narrative, the meta-narrative, the big story of Jesus. That's it. That's it. That's how we make sense of anything. Why am I like I am? What is going to happen to me when I die? Why am I here? What should I be doing while I'm here? What should those around me be doing while I'm here? What should I be doing to those around me while I'm here? What should they be doing toward me while I'm here? Can only be answered if you have the narrative, the story. Again, Sinclair Ferguson 
uh, really highlights that aspect. He says, he says, we're living in a day when the only thing people will say they believe is the narrative. People want to talk about their story. They have a hard time believing absolute truth. And I'm saying this now. The linguistic philosophers of the past century attempted to codify for us that there's no absolute truth and that all we can believe is our story. But if there's not absolute truth and no meaning in the universe, the only thing left for you to do is tell your story. But at the end of the day, you can't make sense of it unless there's a larger story, as I've noted, into which all the other stories can fit. That's why it's a narrative. That's why Luke didn't say what Paul says in Romans. Romans is proposition. We need that. But Luke is giving us the story of the Redeemer and of human history, for that matter. And he's saying, all that you are and all that you have can only be understood if you know not just the story, but the one about whom the grand story is. Now, that's important. You know why? Because Luke addresses a guy named Theophilus at the beginning of this book. And Theophilus is apparently one of his friends, and he knows something about the story, but he doesn't know the one, it would seem, about whom the story is speaking. And Luke is trying to help him to see, in order for you, Theophilus, to make sense of anything, and especially yourself, you have to come to know the one about whom the story is speaking. Um, It's so simple. Everybody you know falls into this category. You and everybody else. It's so simple. Um, Finally, and very, very quickly, the the, uh, veracity of this gospel record, or he wrote a verified gospel record. Um, You know, we've talked about Luke placing himself on par with the apostles. That's very important. Luke is, is essentially saying he is on the same footing with Peter, James, and John when he says, I thought it good that I myself give a detailed, ordered, well-researched record. Um, this is not just literature. This is God's word. And, and as such, it carries an authority with it. And I think the authority comes, and we see this, in that Luke says to this Theophilus, and by the way, um, if you've never recognized this, he, he introduces the name Theophilus with the word, O most excellent, O most excellent, which is not a normal way of dressing. Like if you wrote me a letter in the first century and you were like, O most excellent Nick Batzig, I'd be like, no, come on, <laughs> keep it coming. I mean, stop, stop, just stop. <laughs> um, that would be completely out of line. Almost sinful Nick Batzig, maybe. <laughs> Almost excellent was a term for a leader. Theophilus is some kind of public official, apparently. He is some kind of man that holds clout. He is a man with authority. He is a man with some kind of substantial authority within the community. And Luke is appealing to him, and he is saying, Theophilus, there is a greater authority. There is a more verifiable authority than all other authorities. Notice what he says. He says, I'm writing you an orderly account, the end of verse three, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Now, why is that important? That's important because myriads of people who once professed faith in Christ depart from the faith. I have been watching them drop like flies 
pastors and people alike in my short little life, it keeps happening and nothing surprises me anymore. Used to be a PCA minister, now I'm an atheist. Going to hell. Because they turn their hearts from the authority of God's word and from the absolute certainty of what's written in God's word and from the well-researched, careful, narratival truth about Jesus and about what Jesus did at the cross and about what they are and about what kind of people he came to save and about how they are that kind of person that he came to save. You know, one of the beautiful things about Luke's gospel, and I find myself feel this when I come there, you know, I am, I'm the sinful woman in Luke 7. I'm, I'm Zacchaeus. I'm Levi, the tax collector. I am, I'm all those things. And if you can't say that, it may be because you're not a Christian. Because Christians read accounts of lost sinners like Bartimaeus, who is hopeless and helpless, and they say, that is me spiritually. And a believer who has received this testimony is somebody that says, I, I, I was the lost son and the older brother. I was the older brother and the younger brother. I'm both. And I was the lost sheep. And I was the lost coin. I'm all those things. That's me. That's my story. If you want to tell somebody your story, here's your story. I was lost and now I'm found. Because Jesus has come and has come seeking and saving the lost. I was poor. I was needy. I was outcast. I was hopeless. I was helpless. I was without hope and without God. And he came into the world and he sought me and he brought me to repentance and he purchased me with his blood and he stepped in my place on the cross. He set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem and he hung in the tree on the tree that I should have hung on. Travis pointed out to me recently that the old version of uh, there is a fountain filled with blood has been edited in our Trinity hymnal. And I didn't know this. This is very fascinating, actually. In the Trinity hymnal, second verse, it says, the dying thief, who is only in Luke's gospel, by the way, in the intricate details that we find him, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there have I, as vile as he, washed all my sins away. And the original version says, and there may I, though vile as he, as if maybe I could be that vile. And yet the Bible's testimony is we are, we are as every bit as lost, every bit as hopeless, every bit as guilty. But here's the glorious news. And I'm here to tell you that one of the greatest doctors that has ever lived is bringing this to us. And he says there is a compassionate, merciful, kind, gentle, powerful, very infinitely powerful Savior who came to seek and to save the lost. Now, you are in one of two categories this morning. You are either lost or you have been sought and saved. Those are the only two categories. You are either still lost and you need to believe the record that John has written. He wrote this so that you would believe that you would receive it as credible, as ordered, as authoritative, as carefully detailed. And I hope over the next year and a half, two years, if the Lord wills and we can go through this, 
that I hope that all of us will not only give assent to some of the story about Christ, but will know the Christ about whom the story is speaking. That's the goal. That's the goal is to know him and to flee to him and to find ourselves. And I'm going to leave you with this picture. Twice in Luke's gospel, you find people sitting at the feet of Jesus. The feet that were nailed to the cross. Those feet, you find Mary in chapter 10. You find the Gadarene demoniac sitting at the feet of Jesus. Healed, restored, ransomed, delivered. I hope that you'll know that same seeking and saving Savior and that you'll trust in him so that you might have life and that you might have salvation and redemption and be built up in him. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for such a glorious word and such few um, lines. And we thank you that even this introduction has been breathed out for you for the salvation of your people. We pray that you would help us to receive everything in it. We pray, our God, that you would help us to come to the Lord Jesus, to the one who is held out in this gospel. We pray, our God, that all of our gaze and focus would be on him who set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem to redeem us from Satan and sin and death and judgment. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.